Several times in, in Jesus' ministry, the, the Jewish leaders, his, his enemies, tried to, to, to trap Jesus. They, what they would do is they, they would try to, to ask him a question publicly, and they would bring a question to him that they thought as long as he answered the question, they could use his answer against him. Like one time... They asked Jesus if, basically, do you think it's a good idea that we Jews have to pay taxes to the Romans? And the idea is, if Jesus says no, you know, they're uh, usurping authority. This is the, God, the land God promised to Israel. We should not have to pay taxes to the Romans. They could rat him out to the Romans, and maybe get him in trouble. But if he didn't say that, and he said no, we need to pay our taxes to the Romans. They could try to use that against, against him amongst their own people. Say, so, let's see, like he's a Roman lover. They tried to trap Jesus um, all the time. And today, as we begin Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read this as a story of a, another time that the Jewish leaders tried to trap Jesus. They try to trap Jesus by again coming with a question that they can use against, they can use his answer against him no matter what he says. And it's no accident that the topic of that question is divorce. Divorce, we can tell by today's passage, has been a divisive subject for at least 3,400 years. Because Moses' writings are going to come up today. And Moses wrote what he wrote 1,400 years before Jesus was alive. And they were still arguing about it in Jesus' day. And it's still a hot-button issue today. And we're going to read this passage in just a minute. And you'll notice in verse 3, we're told really clearly the whole reason they bring this question up is not because they want to learn something about divorce. Their purpose is to tempt, to, tr to test, same word, to try, to pressure Jesus. It's a trap. It's disingenuous. They're not really wanting to learn an answer. They want Jesus to say something that they can use against him. Here's why that is so important for us to understand. Because it's still easy to fall into the trap that they laid. This is a topic that's divisive. That makes people defensive and angry and self-righteous and self-hating. That's why they asked the question. And I want to speak what I believe is the truth a difficult topic, but before I even start, I want you to hear um, that I think we can do this in a way that doesn't pit Christian against Christian. There are, there are disagreements about what the Bible says about divorce amongst people. The, the guy that I love and respect as, as my pastor, I don't have the same opinion on divorce and remarriage that he does. And he is the, the Paul to my Timothy, if you know what I mean. I don't want us to fall into the trap 
that they laid. And I also want you to hear this. Jesus came more than to teach. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to restore what is broken. He came to heal what is sick. And he came to welcome the marginalized. And he wants to do that inside our marriages. He wants to heal and restore. But he still wants to do that for those of us who maybe have seen a marriage fall apart. And every single one of us, I'm confident, in one way or another has been affected by divorce. Whether it's ours or someone that we love. Let's read our passage today. And we'll see, uh, see what this trap is and what Jesus has to say about divorce. This is from Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 12. This is the New American Standard, and it reads this way. When Jesus had finished these words, he, depart, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they, no longer, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They, that's the Pharisees, said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Verse 9, And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like you say, it is better not to marry at all. But Jesus said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this. Let him accept it. There's our passage, and we, we start in the beginning of verse 19 where there is a significant change in sort of the scene of the story of the gospel of Matthew as we, as we go through it. Uh, we read in the first couple of verses that Jesus leaves Galilee uh, and, and is going, at least, to, to Judea. And our English versions make it sound like he crossed the Jordan from Galilee into Judea. And, but if you know your first century Jewish geography, and I know you do, you know that you can't cross the Jordan River from Galilee into Judea. It didn't work like that. This is Galilee in the pink up here. Judea is down here, and the Jordan River runs, runs alongside each. So here's what's going on. Jesus hung out up here. Here's Nazareth, and, and when he 
crosses the Jordan. He actually crosses into this region probably of, of the Decapolis and is going to come down through Perea on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to take the normal Jewish route, which skips this area, which is Samaria. So he crosses over the river, goes through this, and he's going to go down. And here's what's happening. To let you know where we are in the story and how close we're getting to the end, the end of chapter 18 is the last time that Jesus will see his home of Galilee before the cross. He has promised twice already, and he'll do it again soon, that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He's going to be killed and rise again. And that trip starts right now. And somewhere along that trip, I have my suspicions it was in the region of Perea, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Jesus is approached by some Pharisees who, as I mentioned, attempt to trap him with this question. Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any reason? They want to know, give, me the, give us the list of things that make a divorce okay. Now let me explain first why this is a trap. They know Jesus' answer because he's already preached it. In the Sermon on the Mount, and we can assume because he preached this in the Sermon on the Mount that this was part of his continuing ministry. Jesus has already taught about divorce. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached this. It was publicly. There's lots of people there. It was no secret. Jesus said, you heard it was said that whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. This is from Moses right there. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus said that already in the Sermon on the Mount. This was in a portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was poking holes in people's righteousness. This was in, the, in a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was saying things like this. You all know the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. But don't think just because you've never killed a guy that you are innocent according to the sixth commandment before God. Because if you've got the seeds of murder in your heart, if you've hated someone in your heart, if you walk around with that sort of anger, like that's enough to make you guilty before God because he's so much holier than we are. We all fall short. Then he said, we all know adultery's wrong. Don't think just because you've never made it that far that you're innocent according to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you've got the seeds of that in your heart, that the first look, that you look at someone inappropriately, you're already guilty before God because he's so holy, he's so uh, much his righteousness outshines as we all fall short. In that same section, he says, I know that Moses gave some rules about divorce. Don't think that because you did it the right way, that that means you're pristinely innocent before God. His holiness is, is just far above ours. We all fall short. That's the whole section that this comes from. But the Pharisees, as they normally did, missed the point. All they hear, all they hear 
is that Jesus has a very conservative and narrow view of divorce. And they just want him to say it. This is part of the trap. Jesus is traveling. He's left Galilee. He gets close. As he gets at least, once he crosses the Jordan River, he's at least close to Perea and getting closer. And that means he's getting closer and closer to the place where something else happened earlier in the book of Matthew that we learned about. And that was Jesus had a cousin named John who was executed in Perea. Anybody remember who executed? What was the guy's name that's the governor of that area that executed John the Baptist? Anybody remember? His name was Herod, Herod Antipas. Does anybody remember why Herod Antipas and especially his wife was so mad at John that they wanted him beheaded? Because John talked publicly about how their illicit, incestuous marriage. Because they were like brother and sister. I know that's weird, but sorry. Right? And, and John would take Governor Herod to, to task and say that your marriage is wicked and you should have never divorced your other spouses to do this. And that got him killed. So part of the trap is, hey, when Jesus gets close to, to Herod's fortress there, let's make him give his spiel about divorce. Maybe Herod will catch wind of that. That's like half the trap. But it's not all of it. Because divorce is a, is a hot-button topic. And the, the divorce issue in Jesus' day centered around one passage in the Old Testament that comes up in the passage today. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Moses wrote this. If a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found anything indecent in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. And I have, full disclosure, I have monkeyed with the translation here a little bit to make this read this way, anything indecent. Okay, your Bible says something very close to that, but I, this is a good translation, and I wanted to say this, and here is why. In Jesus' day, here was the divorce debate. Everyone knew that what Moses wrote about divorce was that Moses said divorce is legit if a man finds anything indecent in his wife. Everybody knew that much. But Moses never describes what anything indecent means. He doesn't give the list. And there was a debate in Jesus' day about what anything indecent meant. And here's the two camps. Over on the left here, there was a, a, a sort of branch of Judaism based on the teachings of a guy named Hillel the Elder. And this was the, the more liberal, the more loose um, branch of Judaism. And they sort of focused on the word anything in anything indecent. They thought what Moses meant was, if a man finds anything he considers indecent and pleasing, then, then God is okay with a divorce. And he gave a list. And it's crazy. It's things like not cooking good. Seriously, it's anything. Moses said anything, right? Now the other branch of Judaism from is Shammai, from the teachings of a guy by that name. 
And they focused on the word indecent. And because of a, a kind of a, an idiom or a figure of speech in Hebrew, there's reason, good reason to believe the indecent part here is sexual indiscretion. Um, if a man finds that in his spouse, that's what this is for. And they said anything of that nature is what Moses taught. That's the debate. Now, Jesus was neither Hillel nor Shammai. He was something completely different. But on this issue, he was a lot more Shammai than he was Hillel. And he makes that very clear, and they know this. All they want him to do is express verbally and publicly again everywhere he goes his very narrow view of when divorce is acceptable because it's going to make at least half the Jews mad. And they're happy with that. Just alienate him from half of the people. That's why this is a trap. They're disingenuous. Um, and the whole thing together is sort of like, maybe Herod will get, uh, will get wind of this and, and they, he'll kill him and we don't have to because we know they're already plotting ways to kill him. And if nothing else... We can use this against him, and maybe he'll lose a bunch of his following or popularity or whatever. So that's the trap. Does that make sense? So they've come to Jesus, and they've said, give us the list. When is it okay to get divorced? And Jesus refuses to enter into the debate on Deuteronomy 24. In his answer, give us the list. When is it okay to get a divorce, Jesus goes back to uh, what I'm going to call the pre-law ideal. Jesus doesn't quote Deuteronomy 24. He quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Um, it reads this way. You can see it on the screen. He answers, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and the two shall become one flesh, one thing, one family. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. That's, that's Jesus' answer. They've asked, give us the list of when it's okay. And it's sort of like Jesus said, well, I mean, it's, it's never okay. Like, it's never good. God intended each marriage to be a permanent union between one man and one woman. That's why Jesus quotes what he quotes. He goes back to the beginning and just says the idea. You want to know what's okay? You want to know what's good? Then look at what God created us for. In, in, in quoting the Genesis 1 verse where the creator created Mankind in his image were male and female in God's image. You know why? According to this passage, it's for marriage. He didn't just make us the way we are just for, for babies or for where babies come from. He made us male and female for marriage. That's the building block of, of society. Is, is permanent 
marriages. Now, Jesus is going to grant at the end of this passage. It's why he makes sure to say this. Just because society is built on marriage, and it is, and families, doesn't mean every single person who is ever born is called to be married. That's, that's what the, the, the little paragraph at the end of this passage is about. Not everybody, not each individual should be married. But the reason God created males and females is because marriage is what our society is supposed to be founded upon. That's his idea. By quoting Genesis 2.24, where a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife uh, and become one, one flesh. It's like one thing. A new family. Jesus is reminding us of something else important. Here's what that verse means. It's not that, that uh, we just leave our parents and do something physical. It's, it's a new family is created. And this is about leaving father and mother. A man leaving his father and mother. There's a reason that that's masculine. There's a reason that he says a man leaves father and mother. This is not physical proximity. This is about loyalty. Because in the, most of the history of the world, men didn't physically leave their parents from a proximity standpoint, right? A man grew up learning a trade from his dad, and they worked together till dad died or couldn't work anymore. And it's not like they commuted to work, right? It took the L train and got off at the fourth stop and went to work with dad. They lived often with, or at least very near, their parents. But from the very beginning, in fact, when there was only two people alive, God said, here's the way this is going to go down. Man, a man is going to leave his father and mother, not in proximity, but in loyalty, and be united in his, to his wife. And they're going to become one thing so that even though he still lives, maybe even in the same house with his mommy and daddy, his ultimate loyalty has changed. His ultimate loyalty is now to his wife that he is now one thing with. Now, why does Jesus quote that when they've asked, when can we get a divorce? Can you give us the list of reasons when it's okay to get a divorce? Jesus says, your ultimate loyalty is to your spouse. We shouldn't be looking for the list. Would you think it was weird if kids started divorcing their parents? Kids, you probably would like that. I saw some smiles there, and I won't tell the parents which kids smiled, because that would, be, would uh, violate my pastoral covenant or something, surely. I know there in our postmodern society, that's literally happened. Kids have gone to court and tried to divorce their parents. Can we all agree that is not the way things ought to be? That's weird, that's strange, that's bad. Now, are there situations where things are so bad at a house that the best thing we can do is get parents out of or get kids out of there? Yeah. Would we all agree that's bad and not good and not the way it ought to be? Yeah. Jesus says, kind of like 
you would never, as a kid, especially in first century Jewish society, you would never have divorced your parents. You disagreed with them, couldn't stand them. They made you want to scream and yell and run away, but you don't divorce your your parents because that's that's your family unit. That's the clan. This is once you're married, that's your new loyalty. What God has joined together, we shouldn't separate. This is kind of, that's the first part of Jesus' summary position on marriage. What God has joined together, let no one separate. They say, what's the list? When is, when is divorce okay? And he's like, man, it's, it's like it's never okay. In the same way, it would never be okay for a kid to divorce his parents When kids have to be taken away, it might be such a dumpster fire of a home situation. That's the best we can do. But that doesn't make it okay. So Jesus, but they've gotten what they wanted, really, sort of. Jesus has espoused a very conservative view of divorce. What's the list? And it seems like he's saying, like, there's no list. Which is why they respond this way. Now they go to, De- to Deuteronomy 24 because Jesus won't. They say to him, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and divorce her? In verse 8, Jesus said to them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hard hearts. But it was not to be that way. And from the beginning, it was not this way. I want to make sure you notice something the Pharisees do. The Pharisees remind me of the serpent in the garden here. If you know that story of, of Eve being deceived in the garden. And the serpent takes what God really said and changes it just a tiny bit. Satan's really good at that. The Pharisees do this here. They say, why did Moses command us? Well, Moses commanded us to get a divorce. Who are you to say we shouldn't when Moses commanded us to do it? If, if God forbids divorce, like you say, then why did Moses command us to get a divorce? And Jesus changes their word. He says, Moses permitted. Permitting something and commanding something aren't the same thing. Seems like a small difference. But it's not. Moses never commanded anybody to get a divorce. Okay. Something important to understand about the law. The Old Testament law. I mean, uh, found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is what's sometimes called the moral law of God. And I don't like that term really, but the law of God, the, the law of Moses, is where we learn some things are sins that we otherwise like wouldn't know. Like Paul said, I wouldn't even know coveting is a sin if it wasn't written in the law. Seems comes by pretty natural to covet, want stuff you don't have. We do learn that. In the law, we learn what sin is for sure, and we learn we can't keep it, which is probably the most important thing it teaches. But the law had another real-world purpose. Those books, the law of Moses, that's like the constitution for the nation, of ancient nation of Israel. It was their written code of laws. It's how they ran their government, right? It's like their constitution. And... Jesus says, people were such a wreck, their hearts are so hard, 
that even though God wasn't a fan of divorce, Moses had to write down some rules about what could and couldn't happen. Like right now, I'm not a, I don't like divorce. Nobody likes divorce, but I'm glad our nation has some laws about divorce because people will do terrible things to other people. And as a society, we need some rules to protect ourselves from each other. And that's part of the Old Testament law too. Let me tell you what was happening in Moses' day. Even though this was 3,400 years ago, divorce was alive and well. Divorce is not a new thing. And everyone knew, even before the law was written down, everyone knew like adultery is not a very good thing. That's bad. So here's what some people were doing. I have an idea. I'll tell my wife we're divorced. Now I can go do my thing, whatever I want to do for a while. If I come back, I can say, hey, now we're married again. Whatever happened out there, it wasn't adultery because I wasn't married. That's what's being forbidden in Deuteronomy 24. The flippant, abusive divorce and then remarriage. Giving people a license to do what a reason, even, you know, what, what shouldn't be done. And so Jesus says, Moses wrote what he wrote because your hearts are so hard and people are such a wreck that if we don't have some rules to protect people, like you guys will do stuff like that. That is a far cry from, it, it is not, it was never a list of when God thinks, when God's going to shout amen at my divorce. All right. But it's not supposed to be that way. Here's Jesus' summary, his stance on marriage. This is, this is most of we get. We've read part of this together. Or already, we've read all of this already from different places, actually, but Putting these two together, 6b and 9, Jesus said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's Jesus' position on divorce. What's this mean? Well, some things we can know very clearly. Very clearly. Jesus says divorce is not something to be like sought after, right? It's not the ideal. God's heart is that marriages last. And very clearly, Jesus rejects ending a marriage at all unless there's a, there's a terrible circumstance. And he says immorality, and that is... That is Adultery, there's sexual indiscretion. Now, is that, the, is that the list? They've asked, Jesus, please give us the list of when God's okay with marriage. Did he give them the list? Is it a one-issue list? Actually, no. We can be very confident that that answer is no. Here's how we know. We're going through 1 Corinthians in Sunday school. Paul told the Corinthians another thing. He said, all right, 
Corinthians, let's say that, uh, you know, they're in the Roman Empire. People hate Christians. Uh, you just converted to Christianity, which kind of puts you on the blacklist in society in certain ways. And life might get dangerous. Well, you might be married to someone who doesn't want to be married to one of these crazy, crazy Jesus people. I don't want to be married to you. You've accepted this Jesus thing. It's going to make life tough for me. I don't want your persecution because I don't like your Jesus. And so they had asked, the Corinthians asked Paul, what do we do? And Paul said, listen, if you're in that situation and that person wants to leave, don't make them stay. Let them go. And he said, you are free to marry someone else. So Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual indiscretion and marries another commits adultery. But there's one exception, then Paul gives us another exception. So is that the list? I'll tell you this, I'm confident. I promise you this. That's the only two things the Bible speaks to. The New Testament, the only things we can point to for sure where God says, uh, or the Bible says, adultery and, and as somebody who became a believer after they were married and the, the, the unbelieving spouse does not want to be married to a Christian and leaves. That's the only two things on the list. Does that mean that anybody else who ever gets a divorce for any other reason lives in some sort of state of perpetual adultery? I want, to sh I want to share with you from my heart, I want to be very careful. This is, this is Matt Maxwell's, uh, my best shot at this. This is not the full position of our church or the Berean Fellowship. I don't think we have one. Here's one thing I'm sure of, God hates divorce. You know how I know that? Because in Malachi, God said, I hate divorce. That's pretty clear. So I know that. I am also sure God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and he wanted that to be permanent for life. I'm positive of that. But what I think happens today is some people come to Jesus and says, give us the full list. And Jesus said, I'm not giving you the full list list. We know he didn't give the full list because he says one thing and then Paul adds at least one other thing later. Now I want to be very careful. I do, please don't leave here today thinking, Pastor Matt thinks I can get divorced for anything I want. No, no, I'm not going to give you a list either. I am much more Shammai than Hillel. But here's what I'm not going to be. So you have a family moves to town and through serious counseling, whatever, I learn that this wife is a, is a woman who's repeatedly and unrepentantly just being physically abused by her husband and so are their kids. His addiction problems and he won't get help, and he won't stop. 
What's the biblical way for Pastor Matt to counsel him? Here's, I am not going to be the pastor that says, sorry, lady. The list is, I have no evidence of adultery, and he's not an unbeliever who wants to leave, so you're stuck. Here's another, this is not a hypothetical, this is a real-world example from a very large, popular megachurch in our country. Young couple, newlyweds, get married, have a heart for missions. This church raises support, funds them, sends them on the mission field. I believe it was South Central America somewhere, but been married, been there just a very short time, been married a matter of months. And the wife gets two accusations about her husband. By the second one, by the second time, she hears that her husband has taken indecent liberties with children. She starts to wonder. Uh, she gets his computer, goes through it, and finds it is full of monstrous stuff. Kids, all right. Let me tell you what that church did who loves the Lord and wants to be biblical. She left. The church put her under church discipline and said, we have a two-thing list. He's not on that list. You stay with, you stay with that man, uh, I assume, bring children into the world and spend the rest of your life wondering if you can trust your husband to be alone with your own kids because he could be a predatory monster. Um, God hates divorce. So do I. In the same way that God hates when parents are so bad that the home is such a tire fire that the best thing you can do is rescue those babies from those parents. God hates that situation. But sometimes... That sort of thing has to happen. I think there are probably times when a marriage is such a dumpster fire that it's got to end. And I think God hates it. But he hates lots of things. Now listen, what are the lists? What are those times? I can't give you a list. You know why? Because I don't think Jesus did. I don't think the Bible does. And I think it's supposed to be the very last possible resort. And I also know this. Even if we have one of those two things that we know are on the list, still doesn't mean God necessarily wants you to get a divorce. And I know that if I or if you, when someone starts looking for proof of the list, I've gone someplace the scripture never wants me to go. Even no matter how many things we have on a list, 
If I start looking, if I start, it's easy to get to the point in a marriage where things, I'm unhappy and things are bad, so I'm looking for evidence so that I can do what I want, which is get a divorce and still be the good guy. That's why Jesus has already said, well, that's just like, just because you never killed a guy, you think you're okay according to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. It doesn't work that way. Divorce is never to be desired. And it should only be the heartbreaking, unavoidable departure from God's design. Is this difficult? Yeah. The disciples knew it was difficult. That's why they ask a very cynical question, and I'll do this quickly. The disciples said, man, if what you're saying is true, if God never, like, is happy with a divorce, and he's not, they said, well, it's better to not get married at all. That's a very cynical uh, response. I call it a question, but it's a very cynical response. That's not true, that it's, it's better to not ever get married. God created us, male and female, for marriage. But the disciples were like, man, if if." If I'm supposed to dive into this thing and there's, there's like no way out that God's okay with, like you said, then man, maybe I should never get better. No, married, no. But Jesus, again, wants to make sure we hear this, that no, but that is true for some people. It's okay and good and right and best for some people to never get married. He says, some people... Uh, don't get married. He calls them being made a eunuch. I'm not going to explain what that is, but I think some of you, most of you know what a eunuch is. It's a euphemism for staying celibate. Very clearly, it's about celibacy, if you know what being a eunuch is. Some people do that just out of devotion to the Lord. Very, very few people do that. Some people shouldn't be married because of uh, they're from birth. They are some way, or physically or something else, they, they shouldn't be married. He says that. Says, uh, for there are some eunuchs who were that way from birth, not fit for God's ideal of marriage. Some who are made eunuchs by others. This might be a physical thing, which it was in Jesus' day. Some men were made eunuchs, right? Um, boy, this could be, I've been hurt, I've been crushed, I've been damaged by someone so badly, this is not a good idea for me. Um, very clearly, our Lord uh, wants single people to hear. You're not a second-class citizen, you're a gift. You're valuable. And you could be right smack dead center in God's will. So what do we learn about marriage here? Marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman. It's supposed to be for life. It's not supposed to be dissolved. But people are hard-hearted and sinful, and this place is a wreck, and people abuse their freedom and use the freedom God gives them to hurt and to damage and to destroy. Divorce has always happened at least 3,400 years worth. And it always will. But it's never to be flippant or sought after by a Christian. 
And when it has happened, just like Jesus taught a couple weeks ago, you may not have been here, but Jesus taught about we're supposed to go after sheep who have uh, wandered from the flock, people who are off God's ideal. And we are, he said, we are not to disdain. We are not to look down upon someone who has stumbled, who's been kicked off the straight and narrow, who has wandered from it intentionally. And I think we would be wise to understand divorce as one of those things too. We are not to disdain, look down upon, hate, think of ourselves as superior. If that's not a way that we have happened to stumbled or been made to stumble. The way we look at our divorced uh, brothers and sisters. Okay? Let's pray with us and then we'll do a little uh, marriage communion even. God, we love you and thank you for your, your word. Thank you for your love for us. Uh, God, thank you that you refuse to be trapped by the trappers. And I pray you'd keep us from, from stumbling on this in the way that they wanted you to stumble. But, but God, help us to take what you say seriously and you desire, you hate divorce and you desire people to be loyal to their spouses the way little children are loyal to their parents. Uh, help us to do that, to be married well, to be spouses who uh, pursue marriage rather than looking for the loopholes to find the way to be divorced and still be the good guy. But God, when it has happened, help us put our arms around our, our brothers and sisters who have been damaged in that way and to see them as you see them, a valuable little lamb. God, thank you for what we're about to celebrate. At your table, we love you in Jesus' name. You know, as we picked an unusual communion text, did you know God got divorced one time? Do I have your attention now? He didn't really get divorced, but he said he did. In, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, because God often uses divorce to picture, excuse me, God often uses marriage to picture his relationship to his people. And Israel during the, this period in the Old Testament was so uh, paganized and unfaithful. This is what God said to the prophet Jeremiah. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. And I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah, the, the southern kingdom, had no fear and she also went out and committed adultery. And as a, as a picture of what God wanted his people to know is like, you're so, you're such a dumpster fire, what you deserve. The, 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 uh, is divorce from me. Go to the next one. And then in the New Testament, God says that the church is the bride of Christ. There's another, there's another analogy. Let us rejoice and be glad as people in heaven screaming. Let us, let us rejoice, rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come 
And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. That's in the book of Revelation. This has not happened yet. It's coming someday. There's going to be a great wedding celebration. Jesus is the groom, the lamb. And guess who the bride is? All of us who believe in Jesus. And listen, here's these two slides we just looked at. There's one people where God held the law up to them and said, you're so despicable, you deserve a divorce. Turn to the end of the Bible, and he says, you are so awesome, I'm going to marry you, hypothetically speaking. Now, what makes the difference in the first people who deserve a divorce and the last people who become the bride of Christ? The only difference is what we are about to celebrate right here at communion. Because the bride who has made herself ready with fine linen and righteous acts, it's not their own righteousness that they wear. It is the righteousness that comes only to those who have been forgiven of their sin based on what Jesus did at the cross. God is so faithful. Then while we were still sinners and deserving of a divorce, Christ died for us and gave us his righteousness. And we might live with him. The guys are going to come forward. Help me pass out the, the elements this morning. Father God, I thank you so much that you were faithful where we are not, whatever our failures are, however we've been in our marriage or marriages, whatever has happened there, we know this. If we have confessed our sin to you, and accepted Christ as our Savior, you will clothe us in the white righteousness of the Lord Jesus, and you will never send us away. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us where ours is lacking. Uh, Be with us as the bread comes around in Jesus' name.